0: Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio.
1: Hey, welcome to Stuff
0: to Blow Your Mind, listener mail. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And hey, you've written in to us. Now we're going to share back with you. Are you ready to get started, Rob? Let's jump
1: in. Oh, what is this you've got right here at the top? Oh well, I I threw some stuff in here. So a lot of the the stuff we hear from from our listeners comes in via our email. I guess that's still the the primary way we uh, communicate. Uh, but we do have a Discord channel, um, which <laughs> what is kinda, it's kind of it's kind of hard to get to. I think you have had to have been in the Facebook group for Stuff to Blow Your Mind and that's where the invite for the Discord is. I don't know. I barely understand how Discord works. But I
0: had a couple... I don't think I was even aware of this.
1: Really? Oh, I I thought you were aware. Well, anyway, there is a Stuff to Blow Your Mind Discord channel. I wish I could tell you how you can access it. Um, Maybe you should tell me if you want access to it, write in to our email address and I'll send you the link or whatever. Uh, but I heard from a couple of our listeners there about our episode on uh, the Whispering Sword, about sentient weapons in mythology and legend. And, of course, we we primarily looked at a few different Uh, mythological and folkloric examples. And we alluded to some fictional examples, but we didn't really spend a lot of time there. And we said, hey, let us know about some of your favorite fictional sentient weapons. And so I have a couple of good responses here. Okay. So Matt on Discord shares the following, quote, love the cold open on Whispers of the Speaking Sword episode. And honestly, the narrative readings and skits are always a highlight. Joe's comment on swords being entitled to the tribute of cleaning to keep them happy and that cleaning a sword is also important for maintaining it makes me wonder if Irish myth is where the concept of uh, the mechanicus belief he's referring to something in Warhammer 40,000 in uh, machine spirits and the need to placate them was drawn from. In the Warhammer 40,000 universe, upkeep of technology has become ritualized to the point that a firearm spirit must be placated by anointing it with sacred oils, lest it (laughs) fail in combat, with no consideration given to the physical impact that the oil has on the weapon's operation. The ritual of anointing the weapon has the desired
0: effect, just not for the reasons they think. You know, it's funny, I can imagine things uh, happening in the real world in in a fashion like this, though, not understanding the real reason you're performing maintenance on something and turning it into a like a religious ritual would certainly make the practice less adaptable. Like you wouldn't, you know, understand as well like how you need to change the practice to respond to changes in conditions.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but, but I think he, he may be onto something here because yeah, there's a lot in, in that universe about, you know, forgotten technology, technology that can no longer be replicated, but can only be maintained and is maybe only half understood at best. Yeah. Fletch on discord shares the following. That was a great episode, but no mention of Stormbringer, Elric of Melnibone's bloodthirsty demonic blade. Uh, this is of course for referencing the books by Michael Moorcock. Um, Uh, which I think I've I've actually read one of them, and I enjoyed it. And then Michael Moorcock also wrote the lyrics to Veteran of the Psychic Wars uh, by Blue Oyster Cult, uh, among his many other accomplishments.
0: I know you've had that on your mind lately.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it's a solid jam. Fletch continues, also from the Odyssey, quote, The blade itself incites to deeds of violence. Um, was used as the title of joe ambercrombie's first excellent fantasy novel or an even better translation of the same phrase for iron by itself can draw a man to use it seems super relevant when robert and joe were talking about how tools can encourage you to see every problem in terms of their use
0: oh yeah of course and you you can realize this in a million different ways i mean i think for example if i'm remembering this right i think emmanuel kant wrote about the idea that a a country that has a standing army will always be tempted to find uses for the army mm. in the same way that a person who's holding a weapon will be more tempted to think of ways that a weapon should be used in a scenario where <laughs> you yeah. know if they didn't have the weapon on their person, they might not think that it was uh, so important to to, to choose violence.
1: Now, uh, speaking of British uh, sci-fi and warfare, science fiction, uh, Fletch also shares, oh, uh, another one just sprang to mind. I'm not sure if it's a bit obscure, but Rogue Trooper, the genetically engineered super soldier from the 2000 AD comic strip, had a rifle, helmet and backpack that had the personality chips of three of his dead comrades, Gunner, Helm and Bagman (laughs) or Bagman, uh, that would talk to him and could operate equipment by themselves. Interesting. Okay,
0: I'm not familiar with this comic.
1: I'm familiar with it, but I've never read it. I've, uh, When it comes to uh. 2000 AD, I've read a lot of Judge Dredd, and um, I don't think I've read any Rogue Trooper.
0: Oh, that's – okay, Judge Dredd is 2000 AD. Yeah.
1: Okay, yeah, cool. He, uh, but there are several – like, he's probably the most well-known. Yeah, he's definitely the most well-known 2000 AD character in the mm. world, but, but there are various other settings and worlds that are popular underneath that umbrella as well. I hear he
0: is the law. Yes, he is. All right. So we've been getting tons of emails in response to queuing. This has got to be one of our one of our highest mailbag ratio episodes of all. Time. Oh, definitely. Uh, we've gotten the same way that probably still the most we ever got, I would guess, was the one about school dreams. Um, yes, those that- still trickle in. Yeah. Yeah. Those all the time. We got so many of those, we couldn't even scratch the surface, but we've also got a lot about queuing. So we'll try to catch up reading some of these. Sorry if you were one of the many uh, emailers on queuing. Sorry, we, we can't even come close to reading all of these, but I grabbed a few here and and I guess we'll dip in. So uh, this first message uh, comes to us from Max. Max says, Hi, Robert, Joe, Seth, and Carney. Longtime listener here from Sydney, Australia. I was talking about your episodes on queuing with my partner who lives in Singapore and has always said Singaporeans love to queue. And she reminded me of a cultural queuing experience that took me by surprise. A few years ago, whilst in Singapore, she brought me to a reputable Michelin star restaurant to eat chicken rice. Waiting for food was handled in an orderly manner by means of a ticketed queuing system. However, Finding a table in the dedicated dining area required self-governance. This manifested as unseated patrons analyzing people who were already seated to determine who would finish eating the fastest, e.g., do they have a child, are they talking a lot, how full are their plates, etc. A sweet spot in the room could then be selected for standing and waiting in until a nearby customer finished their meal and yielded their table. I must emphasize the nearby in this statement, as there were many other people doing the same thing in different areas. My partner assured me that this was common practice, yet I still felt uncomfortable with both waiting purposefully in order to encourage people to eat faster, and then later with the experience of others waiting for us. Cues for food court seating in general are a little bit lawless at the best of times. However, this was not a public food court. Thanks for your episodes over the years and also for recommendations such as Blindsight and the Rifters series. Looking forward to that future Star Trek episode, Max.
1: Yeah, we do need to do something Star Trek related eventually. Uh, I was just thinking about that the other day.
0: Uh, yeah, th- this is really interesting because, of course, you're talking about like pairing the, the different kinds of waiting experiences, one that is like just opportunistic and self-governed and the other that's an orderly first-come, 1st serve queue. Uh, and it's funny that the, the first-come, 1st serve queue is the first half of the experience, but then you have to find a place to sit. I've been to places. In fact, there's even like a food court type place here in Atlanta that I've been several times that – it it is much like this you know you you wait in line to get your food but then you've got to find a table and that's actually the really stressful part um yeah, but because at the, that point you got your food yeah. on, like
1: on a tray in many cases and then where like where are you going to go like that's the worst it's like oh man uh, am i going to have to like squat and gobble this this uh this this meal somewhere
0: yeah totally and th- and then the other interesting thing about it was how it changes your mentality about uh queuing and ordering access when what you're trying to get access to is not like a good or service that you you know get done and then you can leave, but an experience. Like if you're you know sitting down to have a meal is you're you're paying to have a nice experience that is going to be pleasant. And mm-hmm. obviously, if that experience is tempered by the fact that you're aware people are like looming over your shoulder, hurrying you to get up, that does seem yeah. like that. I don't know. But it sounds like you know, for people who are used to it, and this is a common way of ordering restaurants. Uh, uh, you know, if you're used to it, I guess it just doesn't bother you.
1: I guess it's like, and this, I'm very much talking pre-pandemic times here. It's it's like if you travel to somewhere like New York City and. You realize, oh, if I go to eat at a restaurant, I'm going to be exceedingly close to everybody else in that restaurant because that's just how dining spaces tend to work in a city like this. Uh, Like that can be shocking uh, if you're coming from a place where you tend to have like, uh, you know, more of a, a, you know, spacious dining experience. But if you if you've experienced it enough, if you've been in New York City long enough, uh, then you would grow accustomed to that sort of environment. And it just makes sense that you're
0: this close to other people. Yeah. Rob, I wondered if you might want to read this one from Matt, because I wonder if you've had a similar experience to what Matt describes here with with air travel.
1: Okay, Uh, Yeah. Matt writes, hello, Robert and Joe. I love the show and really enjoy the deep ways you think about topics. I have three thoughts about waiting in line. Firstly, at the airport gate, when they call my section to board a plane, a 100 or so people jump to their feet to make a long line while I prefer to stay in my seat as long as possible. Being 6'2", tall, I don't see the point of rushing to leave my chair with plenty of leg room to squeeze into the tiny and cramped coach seat on the plane, let alone stand in line, a line that doesn't help me in any way to gain a better position on the plane. Secondly, I would like to point out the disappointing feeling that occurs when you join a line and nobody else joins the line for a long time or never. It makes the time spent in the line feel like so much more of a waste when I could have done something else productive for all that time and not missed out on my place in line. And lastly, when I was in elementary school in Australia in the 1980s, kids would frequently ask for uh, backage, being asked, (laughs) can I have backage? And it meant, may I get in line behind you? The person would usually grant the baggage if they liked you, and hence, you'd only ask for baggage from a friend because it was an unofficial law amongst the kids. Although the kids trailing in line were unhappy about it, they would never complain about the injustice. Thanks for all the learning I get,
0: Matt. Rob, I could be mistaken, but I feel like what Matt describes about the airport experience sounds like a, a rant you've given me before. Am I wrong about that? I don't know. Possibly.
1: I mean, airports make people rant, and I'm no uh, exception to that rule. Um, okay. I would say uh, the only exception that I have to, to Matt's statement here is that, yes, of all things, were equal. I would prefer not to wait in line to then go get on a plane and be cramped in a seat. However, more often uh, than not, part of wanting to get on the plane first is not so much about getting your seat, which is generally... Uh, On most flights, anyway, I mean, I think there's some airlines where it is kind of first come, first serve. But for the most part, yeah, your seat is guaranteed, but not Mm. necessarily space for your bag in the overhead compartment. Oh, boy. That is that is what makes ends up making me nervous because I'm like, oh, all these people are already on the plane. Am I going to have a space to put this or in many cases you get the chance to like go ahead and check your carry on. And sometimes I do that just to avoid that particular headache. So, yeah, anyway.
0: And if, if you've ever had a checked bag lost, then that probably makes you a lot more hesitant to, uh, to yeah. just like hand over your bag at the gate. It's not yeah. fun.
1: But uh, I, I don't know. I, I mean, I I think I've been fortunate. I don't think I've had a, a bag ever lost like that. But I still, I, I guess it's some of these unknowns, right, that ultimately make one nervous. Like, okay, there's going to be a line. How's it going to work? What section am I in? And then is there going to be room for my bag? Do I need to pre-check the bag now? It's, I'm, uh, you know, I'm, I'm just kind of all over the place mentally at that point.
0: I wondered if you were going to do an Australian accent for the Australian elementary schoolers saying, can no. I have baggage? <laughs> Uh, apologize for that.
1: I don't. I, I. I don't think my Australian accent was ever very good. It it kind of falters and becomes a bad Irish accent
0: uh, later on. All right. This next message comes from somebody who just identified themselves as the letter A. So uh, that that is just fine. Uh, a says, "Dear Robert and Joe." So many things to write about Q-theory. I consider myself a good-natured pedant with an appreciation for the categorical imperative. For decades, I have gleefully and cautiously zoomed past dutiful fellow Midwesterners who start lining up single file at the first notice of a lane closure. My conscience is clear as I mentally broadcast. Actually, it is better for everybody to use all the available lane capacity. Upon merging at a late enough entry point to get a little bit of a thrill, I will gladly let somebody else in front of me. And at times, when I'm caught waiting through the long backup, I'll still happily let in someone who is on their game and gets in at the last minute, saluting them for their good use of the road. I related something like this to my boss on the way to a job site, and he said that people who wait until the last minute to merge should be taken out of their cars and publicly executed. Fortunately, he's hard of hearing, so he just assumed (laughs) I was complaining about those who use all of the road that the public has given. He's quite reasonable, and normally we would be up for a loud discussion about a traffic study, but I let the matter rest. This reminds me of the thing about – I think the conclusion I came to about the late merging thing is that obviously, yes, it is clearly logical that that everybody should use all the lanes and do the late merging thing. But the problem is not everybody knows this. And until it is widely known and everybody gets it, you still maybe like have disincentives from doing it just because like it people freak out.
1: Yeah, or it's just not the cultural norm. It's kind of like – um, it's like like eating bananas. So yeah. if you were hanging out with some, with, with some people or you're just a, in a, an environment where, hey, everybody has a banana now, everybody gets to eat a banana, are you going to open your banana the human way or are you going to open it the way that I believe uh, primates have been observed to open it, uh, other non-human primates, uh, mm-hmm. from the bottom of the banana? Which mm-hmm. I've heard the argument, and I don't know if this is actually the case, but I've heard the argument being made that this is the better way to open the banana. Yeah. Uh, but if everyone else is doing it the other way, you're going to feel social pressure to uh, to to follow their suit, right?
0: Well, yeah, but also, I mean, it, th- there is a there is more of an illusion of a competition for resources in the traffic situation, whereas true, a few true. few people would want to shoot you in the face for the way you open a <laughs> banana. People actually would say they want to do that about traffic but of course please nobody never engage in violence over even if somebody is actually genuinely very rude in traffic come on it's not worth it
1: yeah and let people eat bananas how they want to eat bananas don't be a
0: jerk about that either just gonna put that out there So, A goes on. I believe Q-Theory has some interesting applications in other dynamic road settings. When I'm on foot and need to cross a street, I would much rather a multi-ton vehicle keep its momentum rather than stop for me to cross and have to accelerate again. Um, that is really admirable yeah. global energy conservation thinking, uh, a, I, I uh, my hat is off to you, uh, goes on, uh, particularly when there are no other cars and everyone would be on their way more quickly. If I only had to wait for them to cruise past my crossing point, rather than waiting for them to come to a full stop before I cross in front of their deadly vehicle, I would consider this to be a good example of a Pareto improvement. I will typically conceal my intention to cross in order to facilitate this. Also, I'd much rather wait for a slug of traffic to clear the road than to make multiple cars stop just for me and mess up the flow. Where I live, people seem to fall all over themselves to stop their car for pedestrians waiting to cross. I believe this is the law, and there are obvious situations where it is the right thing to do, but it's clear that the system is flawed.
1: Oh, I've certainly been in situations where... You know, clearly the pedestrian has the right of way and there is a crosswalk, uh, but traffic is terrifying. And therefore I might wait for, yeah, for there to be like a slight clearance. Like yeah. I'm not going to be the one to like, I mean, my right of way only goes so far if a car actually hits me. Um, and then sometimes I'll, I'll wait and for another person to want to cross as well and feel, realize that there's strength in numbers. You know, surely right. they won't run over two or three of us.
0: Or do you ever wait for a cyclist who, at least in my experience, for some reason, just seem to be more fearless? Maybe the fact that people on bicycles are just so constantly threatened and menaced by people in cars that, like, they become immune to it?
1: Uh, yeah, yeah. I, I always try and be very careful around uh, bicyclists. You know, they, they share the road, but I, I feel like yield the road is a little, a little more accurate. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, well, and I'm I'm fine with it. I would rather, I would much oh, rather sure, do yeah.
0: that. I mean, it's difficult because a lot of roads in modern cities and places are just not designed with cyclists in mind. I mean, it's great right. if there are like bike lanes or protected bike lanes or whatever. A lot of roads just like this is clearly this was not built to accommodate bicycles.
1: Yeah, yeah, and um yeah, I mean, I have friends who've uh, who've been in some some rough um, scrape-ups between uh, their their bicycles and other cars. So, I mean, I always
0: always be careful around bicyclists. A goes on. While I was visiting South Korea a while back, it was the norm for drivers to blow through red lights when no other vehicles were in sight. Quite rightly, in my opinion, it makes sense to reject the one-vehicle queue, Also, they definitely didn't treat pedestrians waiting to cross with the same indulgence they get over here. I'm no expert, but it seems like widespread modern traffic is maybe more recent in even a developed country like South Korea, and that perhaps a country's general approach to traffic queuing situations will change as more generations go by widespread automobile use. I believe this was the case in the U.S. as cars became more common, although that is obviously a bit different. Why do we wait at red lights at 3 a.m. when no one else is on the road? When did we start doing this? Is this from our culture? Or because vehicular travel has reached a level of maturity or more abundance in our society? It seems counter to the American ideal of individualism. Uh, I mean, I guess in my perspective on that it would depend on you would want to be really sure that you were actually able to see clearly in every direction and make sure that you weren't mistaken about the fact that somebody wasn't coming though i guess that's also true of just a stop sign
1: yeah or or turn signals you know i mean that's always a situation where uh, the turn signal lets people know what you're going to do including people that you might not see someone who might be in your blind spot et cetera.
0: Finally, a truly egregious queue violation is when a car intending to travel straight through an intersection stops in order to yield to a vehicle queued up to turn left, waving them through the intersection and into the path of other cars that are still following the natural queuing order and may not be able to react to this apostasy. This mock politeness is nothing more than a thoughtless, self-serving grab for warm feelings and can be deadly. However, I do not believe it warrants public execution. Love the show, (laughs) eh?
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, I encounter a version of that a lot where I'm, I'm in a turn lane or I'm trying to make a turn across traffic mm-hmm. and there I have to go across two lanes of oncoming traffic oh, and no. a person in one lane will suddenly stop and try and wave me on. <laughs> but, but you can't not, see. Yeah, I can't see the other lane. They're not They They probably have an entirely different view of this whole scenario. And I'm not going gonna to venture into this uh, this danger but it puts you in a tough spot because one person yeah. is trying to be polite they're just you know they don't have all the they don't have the the virtues of of your perspective on the situation uh which uh, in in which you realize that there's danger in following uh following
0: their advice i think the correct solution to this is that all settled areas of human habitation should be fully grid grid mapped in terms of road access and left turns should all be illegal so a- everywhere you get you go full right turns and nothing but
1: yeah Maybe so. All right. We have another bit of listener mail about sentient weapons here. Uh, shall I read this one? Go for it. All right. Uh, this is from Cameron. Hello, Robert and Joe. I just listened to your episode Whispers of the Speaking Sword. I wanted to point out a couple of examples of such weapons I am familiar with. The first, perhaps unsurprisingly, considering the mythological origins, comes from J.R. Tolkien. Tolkien encountered the Kalevala before his earliest Middle-earth writings were begun, and some aspects of some of the stories uh, would become the uh, Silmarillion can be traced back to it. In particular, Tolkien's tragic character Turin Turambar uh, from the chapter of Turin Turambar in the Silmarillion, uh, and also from the longer version of the same tale as published more recently, The Children of Hurin. Um, anyway, they continue. This was inspired by uh, Colervo and even has a talking sword of its own. Turin's sword, named Girthong, appears to speak to Turin just before Turin uses it to commit suicide after discovering the truth about his accidentally incestuous marriage to his sister. This is, of course, right out of the uh, the Kalevala here. Mm-hmm. Um, Anyway, they continue. In earlier versions of the uh, Silmarillion, this same sword is prophesied to be used during the final battle, Dagor Dagorath, to defeat the first Dark Lord, Morgoth, when he returns from the void. Additionally, sentient or at least intelligent weapons also appear in uh, in Xin Xia. This is, I believe, uh, literally immortal hero, uh, the genre of Chinese fantasy literature, where they are often referred to in English translation as spiritual weapons. These Mm -hmm. weapons often appear to have some sense of preferences or intentions, a strong spiritual connection to their users or makers, and sometimes the ability to act with some degree of autonomy. I am personally very new to this genre, but a recent example has gained popularity in the U.S. in the live-action drama The Untamed, which includes a few examples of spiritual weapons being used by its main characters. Thanks for another enjoyable episode, Cameron.
0: You know, in my current D&D campaign, uh, one of the members of our party is a cleric, and he's got a, he's got a really good spiritual weapon. It's a big old ghost hammer.
1: Oh, yeah, spiritual weapon. That's a, that's a, good, uh, a good cleric spell.
0: Uh, and every time he uses it, I, I end up singing that Snoop Dogg song.
1: Spiritual Weapon?
0: I, I think the radio edit is called Sensual Seduction, you, oh. but uh, but I sing Spiritual Weapon. Okay.
1: <laughs> and uh, I have to say, I'm not familiar with this Untamed TV series. It appears to be a 2019 Chinese television series adapted from a novel. So it uh, looks interesting, but I, yeah, I'm assuming this is one that has uh, available... Uh, internationally on one service or another. So uh, if if you're interested in that, uh, look it up. All right, Joe, do we have any Weird House Cinema uh, listener mail to round things
0: out with? Oh, yeah, we got a bunch. I guess we've only got time for a couple right here, Uh, but I'll I'll read this first one from Stacy since it's about Deep Blue Sea. (laughs) Stacy says, hello again, gentlemen. I have indeed seen Deep Blue Sea at the movies when it was new. I loved it then and still do. The biggest thing being talked about in my circles at the time was how this movie mercilessly killed off almost its whole cast. Whole families were saved in Jurassic Park. Not so with the smart sharks. Also, I always thought Michael Rappaport's character was more of a facility engineer type. I think uh she's answering the fact that I said he was a scientist. Uh so apologies about mm-hmm. that. Uh but she says he knew about the emergency hatch ladder. That's that's a good memory, Stacy. Best regards, Stacy. And uh yeah, re- regarding your comparison to Jurassic Park, which is relatively uh uh a uh, very wooly uh, compared to the way this movie uh, treats its characters, I wonder if this is what the Jurassic Park franchise was trying to fix by filling Jurassic world with absolutely tonally inappropriate deaths by torture of characters who had done nothing wrong.
1: <laughs> yeah, there's that whole sequence with the uh, uh, the lady getting scooped up by the Pteranodon yeah. and then or Just or, like or
0: screaming or yeah. yeah,
1: and then she's dropped into the tank with the uh, oh yeah yeah it's 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 rough.
0: I can't remember if I've ranted on this show before about how much I hate Jurassic World. That I found that movie just repellent. Um,
1: yeah, it. I remember disliking the tone at the time uh, that I first saw it, but then I watched it again with the boy uh, with my son, and uh, and he seemed all right with it. So I'm kind of like, okay, maybe I'm overreacting. Oh, okay. um, and then we watched that more recent one, which I I, I don't know if I've mentioned this on the show before, but I found it interesting that it's it's essentially a Hannibal Lecter movie with
0: but with dinosaurs. Wait, <laughs> the haunted house one with dinosaurs? Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, I liked that one more. Yeah, because that, yeah. that one was just absolutely. That was gooberlicious. It was. Yeah. Uh, I don't know how else to put it. It was a haunted house movie, but with raptors instead of ghosts. Yeah,
1: yeah, uh, yeah. I would. Yeah, I can. I can definitely. See, I can see the haunted house uh, comparisons. I, I, I do think it does have some. It's kind of like if Thomas Harris wrote uh, a yeah. dinosaur movie as well. Yeah. There are some, some, some areas of it that I think line up with Hannibal Lecter fiction, mm-hmm. but. Uh, But yeah, it was pretty fun. All right, I'm going to read one here from Dan. Dan says, hello, Mr. Rob and Mr. Joe. I love Brad Dorff, and I'm so glad you finally discussed one of his movies. Wise Blood next? I've never seen Spontaneous Combustion, though it sounds like something I might have watched on the Sci-Fi channel or TNT in the mid to late 90s, possibly with Joe Bob Briggs' intro. Highly possible. They continue. Two movies that show Dorof's range as an actor that you did not mention or talk much about that I'd like to recommend are Alan Parker's Mississippi Burning and Werner Herzog's The Wild Blue Yonder. The former being about the FBI investigation into the murders of three civil rights workers in Mississippi, in which Dorof plays a sheriff's deputy and KKK member involved in the killings, while the later is pure uncut Dorof crazed intensity in which he plays the alien that's all caps or at least mm-hmm. you know, capitalized uh, who spends much of this documentary uh, quote unquote ranting to the camera about how he came from another galaxy and how we earthlings think aliens are so powerful but in truth just suck um i uh, it's been a long time since i saw mississippi burning i think i'm you know I, I was like in junior high or so when i saw it so i i don't remember much of of Dorf's performance i i definitely i remember uh let's see who else in that gene hackman um
0: i have never seen it obviously dealing with the much more serious subject matter than anything we usually do in weird house cinema
1: yeah yeah i don't think it's one we'll we'll come back to but i remember it (laughs) is i is being a good film it has uh, Mm -hmm. a what's his name green goblin (laughs) Oh, Willem Dafoe. Yeah, Willem Dafoe is in it. He's uh, he's good. Uh, And I think it has some other actors of note. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I haven't seen the wild blue yonder. There's another one I'm familiar with. I definitely know it's one of the Herzog Dorif joints, but uh, Mm -hmm. it's not one that I've seen. Uh, Anyway, Dan continues. Speaking of aliens, what is it about Alien Resurrection that Joe hates so much? I haven't seen it in a long time, but I don't remember it being that terrible. Was it that they brought Ripley back as a clone with xenomorph DNA? On another note, I just want to say that I enjoy how Robert calls movies, films, motion pictures, or just picture. I think it brings a lot of classiness to the show. Hope you're doing well. Love the show. Dan.
0: I think for some reason you were saying motion picture a lot in the episode on spontaneous combustion. Just in <laughs> just, the just in the air that day.
1: I don't know. I mean, a lot of it's probably elegant variation on my part. But, um, uh. Uh, but no, maybe I was trying to class it up a little bit, too
0: about alien resurrection uh, yeah, it's not any particular broad plot decisions i mean i think most broad plot decisions i could be okay with if you know if they're executed well it's just something i just find the movie aesthetically nauseating just like <laughs> every single frame of it and the way it looks the way it sounds is just disgusting to me
1: hmm. I have to say, I don't know much about like the making of story on that one, but it clearly has it has so many talented people involved in it. Yeah. Uh, the I mean, the, uh, the the whole cast we we mentioned briefly, I think, in the last one, how how many great names are involved in that one. Um uh, you know, bit players and the the main characters, and of course the the director is Jean-Pierre Jeunet, who did uh, such films as uh, Amelie and Delicatessen, um, a very City long of lost engagement. children. Is that right? Yes, he did City of Lost Children as well, yeah. uh, which uh, you know is is uh, these are all films that really pop visually, and mm-hmm. and, and I really like uh, uh, Resurrection is not a film that I'm tremendously opposed to, but it's also not a film I I've really watched a lot. And I would be curious as to what its production history is, because I know when you're dealing with an alien film, you're dealing with a, you know, a a huge corporate product. Uh, And of course, there are stories, especially like Alien 3, about how susceptible that product is to um, like producer tinkering and so forth.
0: Yeah, I I mean, I guess just uh, being a huge fan of the first two alien movies, I have a lot of strong feelings about it too. So, uh, though I actually really appreciate a lot of things about alien three. I mean, alien three is a hard movie, uh, to judge in terms of quality, because I think I've said this on the show before, but I sort of have to regard it as an unfinished film. Mm-hmm. It is a movie that has a lot of good stuff on the screen, a lot of good creative energy behind it, uh, some really great actors in it. Of course, Sigourney Weaver's wonderful as always. Charles S. Dutton, you know, th- that's all great stuff. And I really like some of the production design on it. And and basically the, the premise of the movie is interesting and, and very gutsy in a way. But also I mean I, I mean I having read about the production, I can understand why Fincher tried to disown it. Uh the director, David Fincher, I think just because like it's a movie that uh he was not uh allowed to complete in a way that was creatively acceptable to him. And so in mm-hmm. a way what we have is just sort of like a an an unfinished film held together by duct tape and staples. Mm-hmm. Resurrection, I find absolutely revolting, and it literally hurts the viewer. Um, (laughs) uh, As Once you get back into the the modern era, uh, I I haven't seen Prometheus again since I saw it in the theater, and I wonder what I would think of it now. I mean, my memory of it is uh, that it was very beautiful to look at and had some really good sequences, but overall did not make a lot of sense and, and kind of irritated me. And then once you get into, Oh, what was the, the one after that one called that we well, did Alien covenant alien covenant. Once you get into that area, it's like so stupid that it can just be pure fun again. Uh, so that's one of those movies. I think I've said this about a few movies recently. It's one where almost everything I can think of to say about it is a criticism. And yet I really enjoyed it. <laughs> I love how in the middle of the movie, you're just, you have no choice. But like your eyes just turn into ping pong balls. It is. It, uh, it, as it turns into this Island of Dr. Moreau movie with, uh, with with uh, Michael Fassbender and the in the Moreau role, I, I don't know. It's so weird and so dumb and makes so little sense, but it is a lot of fun.
1: Yeah, I think Alien Covenant is essentially there are three films in there, and I love two of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, uh, but 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 oh, what about uh, the AVP films, Joe? You just skip right over them. You can't <laughs> talk about dumb alien films without uh, touching uh, touching in on those, right?
0: Oh yeah, it's a different kind of dumb. Uh, I haven't watched those in a while. I think I remember the first one being bad, but, you know, in, in enjoyable kind of schlocky movie that I, I would definitely watched a couple of times in college. Uh, there was one that came after that that was, like, set in an American city. It was more like the, you know, trying to do... The thing that that the more recent Predator movie was also doing, just, like, unleashing these on suburbia or whatever. And mm-hmm. I remember thinking that that one was really gross and unpleasant.
1: Yeah. Uh, I, I think what the world needed... I don't know if this is still a viable option, but I'm thinking... Underworld versus Alien versus Predator. That's what oh, the world okay. needs. You get you get your Alien. I mean, you get your aliens in there. You xenomorphs. You have your yeah. predators in there. You also have werewolves and vampires. How about just Chucky and
0: Leprechaun also? <laughs> you got to have Brad Dourif.
1: Oh yeah, yeah. I, why not? Why not? I'll allow yeah. Alien versus Chucky. <laughs> there you go. Alien's not going to know what to do. This is just a stuffed toy, right? Right. Or, man, Leprechaun, what's he going to do? Is he going to grant a wish to a Xenomorph? That that would be
0: good. But what does the Xenomorph dream about? I wish for meat. Yeah. Okay, we've gone too long. All
1: right, all right. Well, we're going to go ahead and close it up here. But uh, we thank everybody who wrote in, shared messages with us. Uh, keep, Keep them coming. We don't have time. To respond to all of them, we don't have time to read them all on the show, uh, but we we do we do read them when they come in, uh, at least to ourselves internally in our own brains. Uh, so yeah, if you have thoughts on recent episodes, um, past episodes, uh, if you have episodes on, uh, I mean, you have thoughts on possible future episodes, or if you have episodes on possible future thoughts, uh, just let us know. You know how to get in touch with us, and you can find listener mail every Monday in the stuff to blow your mind feed, core episodes on Tuesdays and Thursdays, artifact on Wednesday, weird how. Cinema on Friday, that's our time to just uh set most of the science aside and discuss a weird film. And on the weekends, we have a rerun for
0: you. Huge thanks as always to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stuff to com